Hello, and welcome to episode 12 of One Thing Led to Another. My name is Noah Finko, and I'm your host as always. Uh, For this episode, I'm joined by Django Wexler, who is an extremely prolific and talented fantasy author. He wrote the Shadow Campaigns series, which is a flintlock fantasy series, and is just action-packed and filled with incredible amazing characters. He also wrote the Forbidden Library series, which is a middle grade fantasy series. And his most recent release is The Ship of Smoke and Steel. It is a YA novel and Django expresses his excitement for it to have released, also his excitement for writing it. And I can honestly say that um, I'm super excited to read it after, of course, I get through the rest of my books on my ever-growing reading list. Um, But Django does bring up a point in the interview that I want to illustrate or I want to emphasize here. I feel like there's sort of a stereotype around YA or a stigma around YA. It's, you know, the books for kids, blah, 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 blah. Um, Django is, he points out that there is a gold mine within that YA label that I think you would be doing yourself a real disservice if you were to write off a book simply because it's YA. I mean, as exhibited in our episode with Maureen McQuarrie just two episodes ago, a large portion of the YA audience and YA readers don't even fall in that YA age spectrum. They're, you know, in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s. And I just think if you find yourself as one of those people that hasn't read a lot of YA or refuses to, I I strongly advise against that. And if you're looking for a book to get into YA, perhaps consider Ship of Steel, of Smoke and Steel by Django Wexler. Um, Django has a lot to, a lot of really, really interesting insights into what it's like to be a fantasy author, middle grade author, YA author, as well as somebody who accomplish the end goal that a lot of aspiring writers have, which is to get a book published, and then seeing that book not necessarily be a success, and sort of where to go from there. I think a lot of young writers make that the end goal, and then once that goal is achieved, they're a little bit lost. And Django offers some really, really cool um, anecdotes and insights into how to build from that experience. Um, a couple of announcements. I will be at the Lake Fly Writers Conference May 10th and 11th in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. I will have a booth set up promoting the podcast, doing a couple of interviews with whomever may pass the booth. Uh, so it should prove to be a pretty fun experience. I plan to go to more conventions and get be a little bit more active when it comes to the convention circuit. circuit. Also be a little bit more active on social media. Um, but you ex- can expect to hear more from me, more from the podcast, and of course, more from the authors. But this is episode 12 of One Thing Led to Another with Django Wexler. And I would like to thank you all so very much for listening. And please like, share, subscribe, follow, anything else to help me promote the podcast. Thanks again so much for listening. This is Django Wexler. Hi, I'm 
Django Wexler. Um, my most recent book is uh, Ship of Smoke and Steel, which is a YA adventure fantasy. Um, my other uh, major series are The Shadow Campaigns, which is military fantasy set in a sort of Napoleonic world of muskets and cannons and cavalry charges. And uh, The Forbidden Library, which is a middle grade fantasy about a girl who uh, discovers that her uncle is a wizard and that she can be one too. Wonderful. So then could you sort of tell me the story of the story in that how the story of how you came to writing your first book, the first idea, and then the writing process, and then ultimately publication? Whew, that's a long story. <laughs> um, I've been writing since high school. Um, for a long time, I was a role-playing gamer. Um, I mean, I still am a role-playing gamer, although these days I never have time, but uh, I was just a role-playing gamer and not a writer. Um, but I kind of shifted over to writing as I was always DMing for role-playing games and got kind of frustrated with that uh, the fact that I couldn't do the kind of really intricate stories I wanted to do um, <laughs> because all my players just wanted to slaughter orcs. So um, It always so seems did, to go I, that way, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, players, man. <laughs> Before gaming is spotted, I thought it was great. What I realize now is that I just had an urge for a different kind of thing. Um, you know, I I had always been playing RPGs, and but I wanted to recreate my favorite books and movies and whatever in, in role playing form, and it didn't work that well. So uh, I started writing stories. My friend um, started a writing group when he was a senior. I think it was like a college applications padding kind of thing, and I joined it and I wrote a story. Um, and, uh, I think that group met literally all of once, um, and I wrote one story, but I got kind of hooked on it. Um, and I showed it to some people and they told me it was good and we sent it to a magazine and they rejected it. <laughs> but by the time they rejected it, I'd written like five more stories and I just was kind of like stuck on this path. And so I've been writing ever since then. Um, I wrote short fiction for a little while, eventually got into novels, and that seemed like more my thing. Um, I wrote fan fiction for a while, um, and at that point I was in college. Um, I started with a uh, minor in creative writing, so I went to Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, and my major was computer science, and I always figured that programming was going to be my, my life, my job. Um, but and that writing would be basically a hobby um so i got a creative writing minor uh and then i realized i could actually get a second degree in creative writing so i did that um and it but it was still just going to be like yeah you know maybe it'll be something i do for fun but in i think roughly senior year of college i was like well let me try and write a book that's not fan fiction or like parody or anything that's like an actual book that theoretically could get published so i did that um, it was called Memories of Empire, um, and it's a kind of um, Japan meets Roman Empire fantasy. There's just a lot of stuff in there that's just like things that I threw in because I thought they were cool. I didn't have a lot of restraint at that time. <laughs> um, but uh, so I did that, and I revised it, and I sent it around to my beta readers, and... Um, and then uh, I, you know, looked up 
how to get things published. I would say I Googled it, but I don't even know if we were using Google at that point. It was <laughs> still the deep past. It might have been Alta Vista or whatever. Um, <laughs> the dark ages, some might yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> and to, to bring that point home, how to get things published at the time was you got a physical copy of Writer's Market, which was this book that had listings for all the different agents and publishers who would accept unagented manuscripts and all that stuff. Um, modern self-publishing didn't exist. The Kindle was still in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so I went through and I sent the book out to, to anyone I thought would like it. And a small press called Medallion picked it up and published it. Um, I'm actually always surprised when people tell me that they've read that book because they didn't print that many copies. I think they printed about a thousand <laughs> copies total, um, some of which were later pulped because it didn't sell very well. Um, but it was great for me. I mean, I was like, you know, this is a published book. It's amazing. Um, and then I sold another book to Medallion called Shinigami, which is an interesting story. Although, again, it's it's hard. People ask if I'm ever going to bring these books back into print. And I'm like, there's some stuff I'd want to change. I don't know. Anyway, long story short. Finish that. Um, they didn't want to do any more books with me after Shinigami because it didn't sell all that many copies. Um, I wanted to try and, you know, sell a book to a, to a bigger publisher, to a sort of big five New York publisher. And then also I moved from Pittsburgh where I'd been living to Seattle and got a job at Microsoft. And that kind of upended mm -hmm. my life for a few years. So it took me a few years to finish the next book, um, which was the thousand names. Um, and that was when I got my sort of traditional publishing breakout. So I, got an agent off of that, um, uh, the, just the very standard way of sending out query packages to about 50 agents, and one of them said yes, um, and he sold it. My agent, Seth Fishman, who's amazing, sold it to uh, Penguin, um, which was not yet Penguin Random House, and um, that's that was my major publishing debut, and so ever since then, it's been writing as many books as I can write as fast as I can. So, you you were a, a huge tabletop RPG player. I, I or did you, um, did you read a lot of fantasy when you oh, were a kid? Yeah. Is that's kind of what this drive towards fantasy is? Yeah. Okay. Um, interestingly, when I was, I used to be more science fiction y. Uh, when I was in my teens, I was very into like golden age science fiction stuff, especially the short fiction. You know, so I had, you know, mm -hmm. the complete Asimov and the complete Bradbury and the complete Clark and all these, you know, giant collections of all the great Golden Age SF masters. And I read those. Um, and I read fantasy, but not as much as I do now. And that's kind of shifted over the years. I've gotten more and more into fantasy where that's kind of all I do now. Um, but yeah, that's just always been my genre. Um, I've always been into sci-fi fantasy books, into TV, movies, games, whatever, whatever it is. So one of the things about fantasy is it's a very trope-heavy genre, and it seems like sort of the way the demand of readers now is almost subver subversion of those tropes. It's why things like Game of Thrones are so popular and whatnot. Um, how, as a fantasy author, do you use those tropes to your advantage, but how, how also do you avoid them? I mean, tropes are not always bad. That's the first thing. And, and people mm -hmm. tend to use that word to mean something more specific, which is like cliche or tropes that I don't like. Um, but so it's, it's always about sort of using it to your advantage. Um, the thing about fantasy is that 
it's not that it's it's a kind of a young genre in its in at least its modern form i feel like basically our modern fantasy comes from tolkien obviously and then also from arthuriana via um mort d'arthur and then uh once a future king um because those two things to get together like once in future king gives you uh the the orphan farm boy who turns out to be the chosen one and heir to the kingdom and then tolkien gets you the quest to go and defeat the dark lord right and so that gives you the bulgariad and it gives you um wheel of time and it gives you all the sort of big fantasy series of the 70s and 80s um and so a lot of that that sort of reputation for tropiness that fantasy has i think just comes from the fact that um those origin stories uh kind of overshadowed the genre for so long that it has taken until relatively recently for like most of fantasy to get away from it and i say most because of course if you go back there were always people doing different interesting things but they were not always like the big books that everyone in the genre read um but uh so now it's actually by the time i got there it was in a better place already um i mean so so game of thrones started coming out in the 90s and so that was sort of before i was writing real fantasy and so by the time i started writing in it i feel like we'd gone well past the the sort of traditional tropiness and already into subversion um and so it's been easier to just kind of do what the story needs and not worry too much about audience expectations as per the genre. So you mentioned earlier that uh, one of your struggles when you were an early writer or a young writer was restraint. How did you go about, you know, getting more restraint? And how do you use restraint to make a better story? I mean... How do I go about getting more restraint? By failing a lot? I mean, that's, that's like <laughs> about as much as... So, like, um, several of the stories that I've written, in fact, both The Thousand Names and uh, the book that eventually became Ship of Smoke and Steel were p originally part of the same project, that I made one of these... You know, I think I had been reading... Models on Book of the Fallen and uh, Wheel of Time and a few of these like gigantic fantasy series. And I was like, I'm going to do that. That's going to be my, my epic. It's going to be 15 books. And, um, you know, it had one of those world designs with all these sketch maps and a timeline that read, that starts with like zero, the world is created by the old gods. Um, and, <laughs> ultimately it just kind of collapsed under its own weight like there was just no way that i was capable of doing that kind of project and having it be good um and thankfully i recognized that like before too long there's at least one novel in that universe that will probably never see the light of day because it's bad um <laughs> but uh and then i just kind of started breaking out pieces of that to use in other places because the problem was when I had this idea that this was going to be my opus and I was going to spend the next 20 years of my life working on this one project, I had to kind of throw everything that was interesting to me into that one project. Um, and so I threw in, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte, but also vampires and, you know, this giant 
weird ghost ship and other kinds of magical powers. And there were six different magic systems and all that stuff. And the more I've worked on things and the more I kind of, I don't know, failed at things and got better from that, the more I realized that like often, you know, a book isn't necessarily served by just throwing in every single idea you have when you're writing it. There's such a thing as too many ideas because you won't have the time to let them kind of breathe and explore their implications on the page. Um, and sometimes different things need to be in different projects. Interesting. So let's talk a little bit about your experience writing for middle grade and young adults. So that came after you were writing adult fantasy, yeah. correct? Now, did you find that experience more difficult, more challenging, easier, or was it, or in what ways was it different when it came to creating those books and generating those ideas? The interesting thing is that when I started writing The Forbidden Library, which is my first middle grade book, so my first book that was not for adults, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I'd never written for middle grade before. I didn't even really know what it was, what this book I was writing was, other than that it was kind of a riff on bits of Narnia and bits of Harry Potter. And so I kind of figured it had to be in that age range. Uh, so this is where my agent turned up, you know, did his usual sterling service, you know, so I sent him the draft and he helped me revise it so that we could actually sell it to a middle grade um, publisher. Um, and then my editor, Kathy Dawson, did a great job sort of helping me get it into shape as an actual middle grade novel instead of just whatever I was, was thinking it was. Um, but it, other than that, it was surprisingly not different than writing for adults. Um, hmm. I feel like I never really knew the rules. I mean, I had, I could intuit some, like you can't have sex in your middle grade novel, obviously, but, um, <laughs> but in terms of like vocabulary, I just felt like I wrote the way I normally do. And I relied on the editors to sort of poke me if it didn't look right, or if it was too much. And for the the most part, they did a lot less than I thought they would. Um, I figured that it would come back covered in red ink where they'd be like, you can't use this word or this is, sentence is too complicated. And they have a lot of faith in their readers, which is great, obviously. I hate the hate it when I feel like people are writing down to a reader. Um, that's always a, a horrible turnoff for me. But um, but so it uh, the only real difference was it's different structurally. You know, so I was writing the Shadow Campaigns books at the time. And the middle grade books, the Forbidden Library books, are just so much simpler in terms of, not even in terms of the plot or the language, but like there's only one point of view and there's no chronological tricks. It's just one chapter after another, one character going on an adventure, and the book is only 80,000 words long, whereas the Shadow Campaigns books were 200,000 words long and often involved multiple characters scattered over huge distances where I had to carefully keep track of time so that then when they met back up they'd be at the same point in time and stuff like that and so it was always kind of a relief to just be like okay well what the next chapter is the next thing that happens to alice and that was always a little easier so a lot of the praises that come for the shadow campaigns come from the standpoint of the characters you created namely the female characters you created and and the the relationships that they have can you take me a little bit through how you developed those characters where the idea for those characters came from sure um i mean it always feels weird to me to call out the female characters because i 
you know, it it didn't seem that different to me. Um, I'm glad I did a good job with it. Obviously, you know, I'm a, a straight cis white guy, so I'm kind of the like exemplar of privilege, and so I I try to be careful and to do as good a job as I can, and I have my beta readers who hopefully help me catch stuff. But um, for in large part, you know, it was the same as as any characters. Um, for Winter, who is probably the main female character in those books, um, Arsenia doesn't turn up until the second book. Um, and so Winter is uh, a woman who is, is in disguise as a man in the army, sort of uh, on the run from her past. Um, and I, she was actually probably the last part of that book to click because I knew I had Giannis, who is the, the sort of Sherlock Holmes-esque commander, and Marcus, who is kind of starts off as his Dr. Watson. Um, and then I knew I wanted uh, a woman in the book so that it would not be just all dudes all the time. But I, I sort of struggled with how to get that character in there and how she fits in with the other characters. Like initially she was like, there was a, a character who was like Giannis's sister. And then there was a character who was like related to Marcus and it, it just didn't work. And and eventually I I realized that this needed to be a separate character with her own complete story that was not sort of an offshoot of one of the other stories, which seems obvious in retrospect, but it was a revelation to me at the time. Um, and I was a little hesitant about this doing doing this sort of woman dresses up to join as a man to join the army uh, because it's been done like a million times. You know, there's a whole Terry Pratchett wrote a whole parody of it, which is like, pretty great. <laughs> um, but uh, I convinced myself it was okay after reading enough history. And discovering that this is something that really happened, like not just once, but like literally hundreds of times. I mean, this is probably the golden age of women passing as men in the military, because it's after national armies and conscription, but before like really good hygiene. Um, <laughs> and so, um, in you know Napoleonic Wars and the U.S. Civil War um, and a bunch of things at the time, uh, it it was not uncommon all there's a great book called the cavalry maiden which is the actual diary of a russian woman who ended up riding in the in the russian cavalry um but uh and so that that's kind of how i got to winter winter sort of starting situation um and her character just developed very gradually as as i went along it it's one of those things that kind of filled itself in over time um there wasn't a, just like this sometimes you get a character and it's just like this single moment you're like oh, i know who this person is and sometimes you have to kind of write for a while and then you get it better that often means you then have to go back and change the beginning line. <laughs> so on the topic of of history can you take me a little bit through sort of your research regimen i guess is the way I'm thinking of it in my head when it came to your books, because whereas, whereas the praise is there for your characters, it's also there for the fantastical and amazing battles that you describe and, and the accuracy that it comes to, you know, folks in the military and the militarism. So what was your research when it goes into, you know, this series and others? I mean, it's weird. It's always weird to me because people are like, man, you must've had to put in a lot of hours of research. And it's weird to me because 
like looking back that's true but it didn't seem like work because that's just the stuff i read for fun anyway um the wonderful thing about fantasy or fiction in general i suppose not just fantasy um as compared to like actual history is that you don't have to be quite as thorough um you know if i were writing the actual history of something in the napoleonic wars i'd have to go back to the primary sources and i'd compare multiple versions and i'd try to you know figure out you know very carefully i wouldn't just take someone's word for it but in a in fiction that kind of you're not going for literal accuracy so much as you are going for verisimilitude you want to give the feeling of what it was like not necessarily the literally accurate details because it's a fantasy world and you can do whatever you want um and so i relied on a bunch of really good historians who'd done a lot of synthesis and had and some good parts of the primary sources um so probably my my favorite source that i've read the most times is uh david chandler's campaigns of napoleon which is this 1200 page monster of a book that's just the whole military career of napoleon bonaparte um, and just includes all these wonderful anecdotes and stories and gives you a real sense of how these battles were fought. And then fortunately, because this is now the age of mass literacy in the Napoleonic Wars, as opposed to like the Middle Ages, there's 8 million memoirs and letters and all that stuff from mm. that time period. Um, and so you can get as good of a sense as it is possible to get of what things were like, because obviously everyone involved is dead. So, uh, you know, you can, you can read what they wrote and that's about it. Um, it's one reason I'm, I'm sort of more, I would have a hard time trying to write about like modern combat because there are like people who have actually been there and done that. And, uh, I would sort of hesitate to, to try and replicate that experience on the page um but you know things change over the years and 1800s combat i know just as much as anyone living basically which is what people wrote down at the time so since you are a prolific writer when it comes to writing series how do you maintain not only the build up a build up throughout the entire series in terms of plot but also to have climaxes within each book as well and not to have it be too flat in one book or too action packed in another um it really depends on the series but um my favorite the 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 one that worked best is probably the shadow campaigns and it's partly because so I wrote the first book and then they wanted an outline for the rest of the series, the publishers. Um, and so I wrote what I needed to happen. And then I went back through it and sort of counted up how many book sized climaxes there were in that outline. And then I said, okay, well, I guess there are four more books, right? That's just how many beats there are in that story, um, which sort of surprised me because I had only thought there would be two more, but um, fortunately Penguin was going to go along with it. Um, and so that worked really well because then, you know, each book has a natural climax because the books were divided up so that they had that climax in mind. Um, Forbidden Library is a little different just because the story covers more um, more time because it, it's sort of our character is gradually growing up. Um, and um, 
so there it was more like in any given piece of her life what is the sort of key story um that's the main thing um ship of smoke and steel is closer to the shadow campaigns way in which you know i know where the main beats of the story are going to be and um designed the structure of the books with that in mind so it's not just that book two covers you know from july to august but rather you know i know that there are three big you know story conclusions and the books are kind of pasted around those rather than the other way around so do you find that you stick more closely to your outlines as you write or are you the type of writer that sort has an outline as a basic skeleton but you can make it up and go off track as you go i used to be much more of a like a free writing seat of your pants guy um and then they made me write this outline for shadow campaigns and i was like oh i hate doing this like it took me like a month and it was so hard and i hated doing it and i bitched and moaned and then when the time came to write the second book i couldn't help but notice how much easier it was when I actually had the outline <laughs> and how much less backtracking and rewriting I had to do. Um, and so I kind of went on from there and I've become sort of a converted outliner and I do more and more uh, outlines. And to the point where they've actually gotten like kind of absurdly long, I think my outline for Ship of Smoke and Steel, which is like a 120,000 word book, was like 17,000 words or some ridiculous length. Like, oh my. Like, like more than 10% of the draft. Um, and so, in a way, the outline, like I do a kind of like, I think of it as a skeleton, which is just a, a roughly drafted notes. But by the time I get to this scene by scene outline, it's, it's something closer to a like 0 0.5 draft. Right, where it's actually every scene that's in the book takes up about a paragraph and there's no dialogue, but there's just this kind of like general description of what happens and what people agree to. Um, and the wonderful thing about that format is it's detailed enough that you can sort of see what you're doing, but not so detailed that changing something is a giant pain in the ass. Um, when I was working on Shadow Campaigns 4, my editor said, well, this character who you introduce in chapter 16, I think that's too late, and it really, she really needs to be introduced in chapter 3. And um, making that change in the outline was so much easier than it would have been, you know, rewriting all these chapters to account for the fact that this person is now here. Um, and so that, that sort of brought home to me, like, how useful that process is. Can you take me a little bit through what the process looks like when you have the first initial idea that makes you say in your head, hey, this could be a novel, and then can you take me through to what it takes for that to be a finalized outline and for you to actually say, yes, I'm going to write this? Um, it's interesting because it often doesn't – it's not a straight line. Um, so I have a file uh, creatively named the idea file. Um and whenever I think of something and I'm like, oh, that's a cute idea, like I will write it down in that file, which is was actually sort of a defensive adaptation because I kept having ideas while I was in the middle of working on something else. And that was the only way to get them to stop bothering me. Um, so hmm. I put things in the idea file um, and then 
periodically I look through it and, you know, I think about which ones I actually like, you know, sometime later. And then sometimes they get combined with each other because some of the ideas are sort of fragmentary. So it's just a character or a magic system or a world design. Um, and so you can sort of combine that with other things. Um, and so then when I have the chance to start a brand new project, which is actually not all that common, like, you know, since most of these are three book series and I do two books a year, it's usually only every year and a half or so that I get to start something new. Um, I go through the idea file and I try to think, you know, which of these seems most exciting to me or sometimes depend if I have a particular market in mind, like if we're looking for a middle grade story or a YA story or whatever, then I, you know, restrict my search to that. Um, and then I, you know, I pick one um, and I start brainstorming on it. Um, and what brainstorming usually looks like is me sitting on the couch with my laptop, just kind of typing a, almost like a journal to myself, um, just kind of thinking aloud and seeing if I can get a sense of what this story is going to be. And sometimes it works and I, I feel like I've got it and I can start to sort of see the outlines of the story in my head. Sometimes I'm like, yeah, this isn't working and I don't think it's, it's good. And then I switch to something else. Um, and sometimes I'll go back to that later or not. Um, but so then once I've got, once I've sort of settled on a thing, then I, I kind of brainstorm the major beats and I build what I mentioned earlier that I think of as a skeleton, which is just, it's, it's not even an outline. It's just like literally like a page of bulleted notes that are like, okay, here are the, the major, major plot points of this story. Um, and once I've got that, uh, then I go through and start thinking about how to write an outline. Um, and often I just go straight into the outline stage. Um, and that there's often a lot of like trial and error at that phase. So I'll go through and like, like I'll write um, part of the outline and then be like, no, this is no good. I got to change it and I'll go back and rewrite it, which is great because like rewriting in outline is so much easier than rewriting in in a finished manuscript. <laughs> But then once I get all the way through the end with the outline, then I sit down and start writing and the actual text. And I usually just go from beginning to end. I tend to not write out of order or anything. Although, can I say something um, as that I always say when I'm on panels talking about writing, my sort of universal caveat, which mm -hmm. is that like all writers love to talk about their writing process. But if if you listeners are someone who wants to be a writer, writing process is intensely personal and the way that any one person does it is not necessarily the be all and end all and you should not take it as gospel so you know neil gaiman writes everything longhand with a fountain pen and kevin j anderson walks out in the desert with a voice recorder and there's about a million different ways to do your writing so please don't take anything that i'm saying here as the way to do it i'm sure having done this podcast a lot you know this I think every single writing process has been yeah. different. <laughs> yes. Nobody walking in the desert just yet. I'm going to wait for that one. But uh, also no fountain pens. But yes, very good caveat. And I greatly appreciate that. 
So bringing me to my, we'll call it my second to last question. This is the question I ask every guest that I have. So this podcast is called One Thing Led to Another, and its purpose is to figure out just how professional storytellers make one thing lead to another in an interesting way. So if you could give some advice to my listeners for how they can go about telling a better story, whether that be writing or telling a story at the dinner table or anywhere else, what what do you think they could do to make their stories more interesting and more compelling? Yikes. That's, that's a big ask. Um, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the most basic thing and the, the problem is any advice that or a question that broad always kind of sounds pretty obvious to me, but the most basic thing is to consider your audience because the audience is part of the story and who the audience is, is going to depend, is going to change, not just the way you tell something, but what you're telling. Um, you know, as someone who has had to, you know, so I've written for adults and for kids and the result is that I go to cons and sometimes I speak to writers and sometimes I speak to, you know, eighth graders or fifth graders or whatever. Um, and one of the things that I have, have sort of struggled with and, and not always succeeded, but it is trying to keep in mind who I'm talking to when I'm putting together, you know, a speech, a PowerPoint presentation, whatever. Um, because there's, you know, there's a big difference between, you know, an elementary school teacher's class or a book club from a high school to a sort of general audience at a convention where they are interested and fans, but they're not necessarily writers to like a more specialized convention where everyone's really interested in the, the sort of nitty gritty of writing techniques. Um, and so adapting to that has been the sort of biggest success or when I've done it successfully, it has been the most successful. <laughs> um, it's not so, necessarily something so I'm very good at, but it is a good way to, to adapt your work. Wonderful. And for my final question, it is what can we expect to see on the horizon from Django Wexler? Um, I have a bunch of fun stuff coming up. So um, my last book was Ship of Smoke and Steel, which came out in January, and that's a kind of YA fantasy um i i love that series it's just so much fun it's um if you're if you're a person who has always said oh i don't like ya blah 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 like i understand some people some people really don't like that stuff but there's a lot of good stuff in ya i mean that's kind of how i came to it was my friends told me to read stuff and i was like oh my god like i have been dismissing this genre and in fact it's amazing um if anyone gets the most credit for that's probably Lee Bardugo and her Six of Crows just blew me away. But there are many, many great YA books. Anyway, so writing, uh, I'm writing Ship of Smoke and Steel, um, or I have written it. Um, it's a lot of fun. There are, uh, you know, if you're someone who, who doesn't like books unless they're dark, it has two decapitations in the first, like, three chapters. <laughs> um, but it also has a lot of fun like snarky humor uh, i know i had a lot of fun with it and uh i just finished up um the second book uh which i'm still thinking of as ship of, as ship of smoke and steel 2 but we'll have an actual title at some point uh a pro tip <laughs> is 
if you come up with a cool alliterative title with a particular pattern, try to make sure you can come up with a second one because you're going to ask <laughs> at some point. Uh, and it's hard. Uh, so anyway, that'll be out next January. Um, we should, uh, I don't know when this will be, this podcast will be released, but at some point we'll have like a cover reveal of that and we'll have the title and all that stuff. Um, I'm currently working on a book called Ashes of the Sun, which is another adult fantasy. It's a kind of post-apocalyptic, um, it's a post-magical apocalypse. So it's a high magic civilization that has collapsed and the people are living this kind of Mad Max life among the wreckage. Um, and so that should be a lot of fun. Um, that should be out sometime next year. Uh, depending on when I finish it, probably mid next year. Um, I also did uh, a bunch of short stories for uh, the Magic the Gathering game. Um, oh, wow. For their, it's the prequel, actually, to Greg Weissman's War of the Spark book. So my stuff comes out starting at about the beginning of June. Um, and there'll be, I think it's 20 stories. So it's about a novel's worth of content there. Um, and uh, it's starring Ral Zarek, who, if you know magic, you probably know who that is. And if you don't, you have no idea what I'm talking <laughs> about. Um, but that should be a lot of fun. Um, uh, I'm really looking forward to those actually coming out because uh, it's been a while since I wrote them. Um, and yeah, that should, I think those are going to start releasing at like one or two a week, probably one a week for most of the summer. Very, very exciting. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining thank you me for today. Me.